Good morning. If you turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1007. And let's, uh, let's read from God's holy, inspired word together, and then we'll ask His help in understanding it. So, let's pick it up in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great Reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father, thank you for this word. And I pray that it is an encouragement to the saints this morning to hold fast to Jesus and to treasure him above everything else in this life. And bring forth endurance and perseverance in our lives as a result. So that we do the will of God until the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Wormbrand may be a name familiar to some of you. He founded Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, He also pastored during the late 1940s when communism... Uh, took, uh, overtook Romania. In 1948, they arrested him for teaching that communism and Christianity are incompatible. And that turned into a 14-year imprisonment where he experienced the worst tortures. He would later write about that experience in his book titled Tortured for Christ. In another article, though, he wrote the following words. What shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them? If I don't bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know, because that's what the communists wish from me, to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of preparation for suffering, which must start now. It's too difficult to prepare yourself for it when the communists have put you in prison. In prison, you lose everything. You are undressed and given a prisoner's suit. No more nice furniture, nice carpets, or nice curtains. You don't have a wife anymore, and you don't have your children. You don't have your library, and you never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life pleasant remains. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. I want you to hear that last line again. Nobody resists who has not renounced the pleasures of life beforehand. It echoes the words of Jesus. In Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How does one endure as a disciple of Jesus when the most precious treasures get stripped away in the path of obedience? Hebrews 10 answers that question. An incomparably greater treasure must take hold of you. And that's what we're talking about today. There were some Jews who had become Christians, but now they're, they're wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And part of that is due to their own passivity. They're drifting away. And the other part is due to persecution. Enemies are doing terrible things to keep them silent about Jesus. Passivity and persecution have led them to waver in their commitment to Jesus. And Hebrews was written to address that problem. And it does so primarily by magnifying the greatness of Jesus. Seeing Jesus' greatness compels perseverance. But interlaced throughout the letter are these warnings and these encouragements. Last time we got a warning about those who go on sinning. Today we get an encouragement. He brings up their past experience with persecution as a way to encourage them. He says, faithfulness happened back there. Courage happened back there. I want you to recall it. I want you to recall the treasure that was at the center of it. And the other thing he adds is a reassurance about a future reward. And so past endurance... Future reward, both of these things should encourage them in the present, into this present endurance. So let's look first at their past endurance. He wants them to recall their past endurance and the treasure that compelled it. Recall their past endurance. And the treasure that compelled it. He's like a parent or a coach who's seen you do something well in the past. And they they bring it up as a way to say, hey, keep going. Keep doing that thing we saw back here. And so what is it about these former days that was so encouraging? Verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that means conversion... Right? They heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit brought light into their moral darkness. They embraced the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. That conversion, though, did not mean safety in the world. It meant suffering. The world hates Jesus, and the world hates Jesus in you. And so he goes on, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And there's a word picture here of that of a contest. Like, you got in the arena with suffering and you put up a good fight. That's the idea. You stood your ground in Christ. The suffering was coming at them in different forms too. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproaches, in the plural, and afflictions, again in the plural. So various kinds, various expressions of these things. Reproach has to do with verbal abuse. So you can think of, uh, of uh, the crowds when they crucified Jesus. The same language is used when they reviled Jesus and they wagged their heads at Him and mocked Him. 
Affliction has more to do with physical abuse, abuse, like imprisonment, beatings with rods, lashes across the back, sleepless nights, depriving individuals of basic necessities like good shelter and food, excrement spread on your toast in the morning by the prison guards as a joke. Afflictions. And then other sufferings came at them because they chose to partner publicly with the other Christians who were suffering. End of verse 33. And sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. Same word used about Jesus earlier when he sympathizes with his people. It's here. So it's like this Christ-like sympathy for those in prison that you're united with and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, we, we did this before, but imagine it with me. A brother or sister is in prison for the gospel. And they're hurting. And they're hungry. They're alone. And let's say your small group decides to prepare a meal and go sit outside the prison window to keep them company. Maybe sing some hymns through the bars. Don't think well-built prison system that feeds you three meals a day. But here's the cost. By going, others will see you associate with them. And that means they're coming for you next. Maybe they don't throw you in prison, but they plunder your property. Think confiscating all your belongings and sending you into a life of poverty where nobody else wants to hire you except for unjust purposes. And there's no filing for unemployment benefits either. That's closer to the cost these Christians accept as they partner with those in prison. And did you hear how they accepted it? Joyfully. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They ransacked your kids' bedrooms. They stole all your precious belongings. They smashed your hard drive that stored all the family photos. They confiscated your weapons. They pawned off your tools that you used to make a living for the family. And they accepted it joyfully. How do you do that? We get upset when things don't go our way, even when it has zero to do with our Christian witness. American Christianity gets mad when you start taking their property. Governments start talking property, and even Christians start loading their guns. I'm not saying it's right for the government to do that, nor am I saying it's wrong to speak against such injustice. I'm just saying American culture has trained us to protect our property, not rejoice when it's plundered. And sometimes Christians buy the American lie, which makes texts like this one sound like crazy talk. This passage isn't pressing us into a life that merely puts up with loss either. It's pressing us into a life that joyfully accepts the plundering of your property when the gospel is at stake. A life that rejoices when others say all kinds of evil about you for the sake of Jesus. Matthew 5.12. A life that sings when you're released from prison and beaten for speaking about Jesus. Acts 5.40 and 41. Are you there? Do you want to be there? 
If we're going to make it to the end, we got to be there. So how? How do we get there? How do we get to a place where, where we can joyfully accept the plundering of our property in the path of obedience? Well, the end of verse 34 tells you, since you knew, or because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The losses will grieve you, especially when you see the effects on your children who may not know and treasure Jesus yet, or the effects on your wife when everything's wrecked. But they're incomparable to the joy we have in the better and abiding possession. The only way you can joyfully accept the plundering of your property is if you know you are convinced that you have a superior possession that's worth infinitely more. And that possession is Jesus Christ before God's presence in His unshakable kingdom. The word better, a better possession there, Hebrews applies that word to the person and work of Jesus regularly. Jesus has a better name than the angels, chapter 1, verse 3. We have a better hope by Him giving us access to God, 7.19. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, 12.24. He establishes a better covenant for His people, 7.22. They will participate in a better resurrection, chapter 11, only to live in a better country, chapter 11 again. At the heart of everything better in Hebrews is Jesus, including this better and abiding possession. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is infinite in worth and value and beauty. And then having Jesus means you get access to God. You get access into God's presence. Sin separates us from God, but Jesus gave His life to bring us into the presence of God. Jesus opened up the way to God by His sacrifice. It says in chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus is bringing many sons to glory with Him. You don't get a better possession than God. There's nothing higher in worth, fuller in joy, superior in power, more awesome in splendor. Nothing compares to having God. So the better possession is Jesus before God's presence, and then to top it off, we gain a kingdom where we can never lose Jesus before God's presence. Chapter 12, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken because chapter 11 tells us that its designer and builder is God. And God is infinite in wisdom and power and knowledge, and when He builds something, it lasts. It can't be shaken. So if His kingdom can't be shaken, then the rest you find there can't be shaken, and the joy you find there can't be shaken, and the riches that you find there can't be shaken, and the peace that you find there can't be shaken. And that makes it not just a better possession, but an abiding one. So the superior possession is Jesus Christ before God's presence in His unshakable kingdom. When you have this better and abiding possession, the comforts of this present age cannot hold you in bondage. The threats of people plundering your property will fall on you like rain against the rock. You will be able to renounce the pleasures of life like Wormbrand did because you know you have a better one. Unless 
you abandon the true treasure. Unless your soul becomes so shriveled up by this world's pleasures that you can't really see why Jesus is all that glorious anymore. Unless you sell your soul to the American dream, such as you stop living for the better country, whose designer and builder is God. For whatever reason, these Christians were tempted to abandon Christ. Even with this track record. Just because you have a faithful past doesn't mean you're going to walk away from Jesus. Look at what these people gave. And they were teetering, brinking, on, on the brink of giving it up. Throwing Him away. Even Christians with a faithful past need to be warned in the present. Need to be encouraged to keep going. That's why verse 36 says, you have need of endurance. They're wavering. But that's why he wants them to recall the former days. These Christians knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. And that possession compelled them to stand firm and make great sacrifices for the kingdom. They need that possession back in their sights. They need Christ and His glory before them once again. Knowing and seeing Jesus' greatness compels perseverance. It did once before. It will do it again. And that's what He draws from their past faithfulness and the treasure at the heart of it. Then he also reassures them of a future reward and the Savior bringing it. A future reward and the Savior bringing it. Verse 35 says, Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Why? Because it has great reward. That's one really good reason not to throw it away. You got a great reward. We've seen this theme uh, of confidence before, like uh, chapter 4, verse 16, very well known to, to, to many of you. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Right? The confidence in view is this, this inner certainty, this inner. Con- you're convinced based on Christ's objective saving work. We look at what God accomplished for us in Jesus, and that finished work produces this inward certainty, a confidence that leads to endurance, that leads to obedience to the will of God in the face of suffering. If we throw away that confidence, if we stop resting ourselves in Jesus' saving work, if we don't draw near to the throne of grace for help, then we forfeit the reward. Only those who receive the reward, only those who endure will receive the reward. The crown doesn't come without enduring a cross. We have need for endurance, he says. And the purpose for that endurance is receiving what God promised. Look at verse 38, I mean 36. For you have need of endurance, so that, or in order that, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what, a, what is promised. Again, he's motivating them with the reward, with what's promised. It's, it, it's the eternal rest in God's presence, it's that unshakable kingdom. So, why do we need endurance? There's a reward for crossing the finish line. God holds out glorious promises for those who do His will. But but there's another good reason not to throw away your confidence. Another reason to endure. Christ is bringing the reward. And we know that because God's Word assures us of it. Look at verses 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So he's quoting Scripture. This is Isaiah 26, verse 20, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I mean, not Hebrews. Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. 
And he takes both of these texts, takes portions of both of these texts, and he smashes them together into one quotation here. And it's easy to smash them together because both of the prophecies share a similar context and a similar message prior to Israel going into exile. I'll summarize that for you. As a nation, Israel is about to endure some awful suffering in exile. Babylon is fixing to come and will destroy the nation as a whole. And even the faithful in Israel are going to have to walk through it. They're going to have to endure some very difficult days ahead. But that's not the end, right? God also promises to remember His faithful remnant. He will not forget those who truly belong to Him. Rather, He promises to save them, to judge their enemies. That's important for both of those contexts. He's going to judge their enemies. And He's going to make the world right again. But but here's the great difficulty. That salvation and deliverance would feel to them like it's far, far away. From God's perspective, it would only be a little while. But from earth, the relief from suffering would feel like it's taking forever down here. You feel that way sometimes? The inner turmoil would even get worse because things are out of control. The the faithful in Israel couldn't fix it. Couldn't pull the nation back together. Couldn't make the world right again. Even the faithful. All they would be able to do is wait and trust and obey and cry, How long, O Lord? Do you not see what's going on? That's what Habakkuk's crying. And in the midst of that waiting, though, they they were supposed to hold on to these words. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Not only is it a call to faith, to this trustful reliance on, on God's Uh, God to complete His purposes and do it in His timing. It was also a call to hope. The coming One will come and will not delay. Now, if you flip back in your Bibles to Habakkuk 2, verse 3, the wording in our English translations refers to the vision coming to pass. It says... If the vision, if it seems slow, wait for it. The vision will surely come. It will not delay. The vision, of course, is the vision of God's salvation for His people and the judgment that's going to come on their enemies. Why does Hebrews say the coming one will come? Which is it? The vision's going to come or the coming one's going to come? Vision or Messiah? Well, part of the answer is that he's drawing from a Greek translation and interpretation of the Hebrew. The other part of the answer, though, comes in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, if you want to look at it. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, think visions, think vision in Habakkuk, vision in Isaiah. In many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In other words, with the coming of Jesus, we see how the vision in Isaiah and how the vision in Habakkuk receives its ultimate fulfillment. The coming one will come and will not delay. The Lord Himself will come in judgment 
in the person of Jesus. Jesus bringing the reward. Jesus bringing the judgment on the nations. He's going to fulfill the promises. Some of them He's already fulfilled. Some days our sufferings will make it feel like the promises are so far away. But from God's perspective, He's saying, give it a little while. The coming one will come. I guarantee it. I give you my word and I don't lie. I make it happen. Jesus will come again. There's hope for the faithful. For the righteous one who trusts Him, who waits for Him, who cries to Him like Habakkuk cried, the Lord will remember mercy for you. And so these texts from the Old Testament come in to say, keep going, don't throw away your confidence because the reward is coming. And keep going because the coming one will come. Jesus is bringing the reward. Jesus is bringing the judgment on your persecutors. He will deliver us. So don't be like those who shrink back and are destroyed. By the way, the context in Habakkuk makes it clear that the one who shrinks back is the one who's puffed up. He's the one who thinks he can do this by himself. He's the one who goes his own way instead of God's way. He doesn't have confidence in the Lord. He has an inflated view of himself. Proud people shrink back because they think they don't need the Lord's help. But the humble, they cast themselves upon the Lord's mercies and faith And those who do, this is what happens, they preserve their souls. God saves them. And that's where He believes many of these these Christians are. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back unto destruction. We are of those who have faith unto preserving their souls. The proud man throws away his confidence in Christ and falls away. The righteous man places his confidence in Christ and endures. And that's his hope for these believers. That's his encouragement. And it's an encouragement for us too. Recall your past endurance and the treasure compelling it. Remember the future reward and the Savior bringing it so that you don't throw away your confidence. Past endurance future reward. He draws from both to encourage their endurance in the present. We need to hear this same message today, don't we? Because we too have need of endurance. Jesus said only those who endure to the end will be saved. You've got need for endurance. A big one. We have need of endurance Because our faith in Christ is not a public matter. I mean, it's not a private matter. It is a a public matter. We must be willing to identify with Christ and His people publicly. Last Friday, the elders were talking about a, a brother named Dusty Devers. He's now pastoring in Oklahoma, but he used to be here. One of the accountability questions Dusty would ask was, who would you share the gospel with this week? And if you answered, well, nobody really, he'd say something like, are you even a Christian? Now, there may be some ways to improve on that question, right? Depending on how well you know the people in your accountability group. But here's what it nailed down for a number of us. Genuine faith won't be silent about Jesus. The world will tell you to keep it private. You keep that between you and God. But when you surrender all of your loyalties to Jesus, by necessity, 
it will affect your public discourse and engagement. An inward allegiance to Jesus will proactively resist whatever compromises the worship of Jesus and will publicly testify to whatever supports the worship of Jesus. And people will not like it. They will oppose it. And so, endurance is made necessary when we start publicly identifying with Christ and with His people. Just like endurance was called for here when they had compassion on their brothers and sisters in prison. When we go public with Christ, it will call for endurance. Some members from this church moved their family to Europe a few years ago. They're taking the gospel to some unreached peoples. Recently, they were brought in for questioning. The authorities want his cooperation. They perceive Christianity as a threat to their power. And they want him to inform on the local believers. What would you do? This calls for endurance, doesn't it? He didn't compromise. He wasn't going to form an alliance with these powers. He wasn't going to compromise Christ or the church there. Thankfully, the authorities haven't followed through with any consequences. But the intimidation is still there. He has a better treasure, one that they're not going to take away from him, no matter what they threaten. Over a year ago, another member of this church worked at a local insurance company. The LGBT community was hosting a a pride parade in Fort Worth. As part of their marketing strategy, this insurance company decided to participate in the parade. And the owner asked all the employees to participate in the parade. But our brother knew that to participate in the parade would compromise his faithfulness to Christ. Could his job be on the line? If so, how would he provide for his family? What do I do? This is a moment that calls for endurance. He didn't compromise. He sat down with the owner and explained why he couldn't participate. Proclaim Jesus, proclaim the kingdom, proclaim the kingdom ethics. She didn't fire him, but he endured what this passage calls reproach. Others of you have shared stories where fellow employees were participating in something immoral. Guys are on break. Come here, come here. Look at this video. Look at her. They invite you to participate with them, but you chose not to. And explain why. By doing so, you fulfilled what 1 Peter 4 4 talks about. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Representing Christ. By refusing to participate in immoral behavior, that too calls for endurance. Especially when it means they overlook you at promotion time. Endurance could also mean something as simple as preserving the lyrics in a song. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied... You preserve that truth. You sing that truth publicly when so-called Christians call that divine child abuse. Endurance would also be called for when other business owners mock you for not contributing financially to organizations or causes that may be very popular 
that they may even believe in very deeply when you know those organizations or causes oppose God's word on the family and on marriage and on gender and on justice and so on. It might mean walking into your employer's office one day and saying, sorry, I cannot sign this document requiring me to utilize pronouns of genders that simply do not exist in my father's world. That's not hard to imagine, especially when the Supreme Court ruled this summer that laws forbidding employers to discriminate on the basis of sex also apply to one's gender identity. It's going to get harder. This is nothing. It's going to get harder. And it doesn't go well for guys like John the Baptist who say, Hey, Herod, you can't sleep with her. God says so. Are you prepared to suffer well in the path of obedience? I'm not sure we are. A few of you are. And I'm thankful to see it. I could point to examples in your life where I've seen endurance and the treasure that's at the center of that endurance, like, like we see here. I could, I could name names and just start going to stories with some of you. But not all of us, not all of us as a whole church. For a number of us, we're still too attached to the here and now. We're still too attached to this country and to this land and to these freedoms and to these possessions and to our property and to these conveniences and opportunities Don't get me wrong. I know I rag on America a lot and the culture here, but don't get me wrong. These are good gifts that we have. Really good gifts. We should give thanks for God's common grace upon us in America. We can even pray that these things would last for a really long time for the coming generations, for our children. But... When they are stripped away because common grace is lifted, when they are stripped away from you in the path of obedience, will you grow angry and bitter and jaded and fearful? If so, your happiness is in the wrong place. I've even wondered if this current pandemic is a gift to the American church in some ways to wake us up and say, you're not as prepared as you think you are. If you're mad about this, if you're frustrated about this, and this isn't even persecution, be careful where you are placing your joy None of these good gifts that we have in America surpass Christ, the better and abiding possession. If you do not treasure Him now over all of them put together, you won't last when the suffering comes. If you don't know now that you have a better possession in Christ and an abiding one, you will fold when they plunder your property. You won't stand in the arena of suffering. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, how are are we going to get there? We're going to make ourselves rich in Christ. That's how we're going to get there. By making ourselves rich in Christ. Pour over His Word. Study Him together. Declare His excellencies. Soak in His truth. Keep a vision of His glory in front of you. Memorize the Word together and encourage one another in it. Walk with Him in prayer. Make yourself so rich in Christ, you have everything to give for the sake of others. Be like the church in Smyrna. You remember them in Revelation 2, verse 9? 
Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. How can they be poor and rich? Because they're rich in Jesus. And their richness in Jesus has meant people have put them in poverty and tribulation. They're rich in Christ, and that's what's going to get them through the slander and the imprisonment in Revelation 2. Or take the words of Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Remember what it said earlier from Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith. Well, well, here's what faith sounds like in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, when you're in the middle of it. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. A heart that is happy in God is the key to enduring suffering in the path of obedience. Going back to Richard Wormbrand as we close in his book, Tortured for Christ. He included it towards the end, several letters from a girl named Varia. I hope I'm saying her name right. She was involved in the Communist Party and then she converted to Christianity. And she suffered greatly for it. But I want to read you one of the letters she wrote before losing all contact with her. And I just want to say, I I want to see the Lord work mightily in the women of Redeemer Church to write things like this. So listen. Listen especially for what fills her. What, What is the center of her joy as she endures? She writes, Dear Maria... So she's writing to some other Christians who have partnered with her in her sufferings and sent her gifts in prison. Okay? So, dear Maria, at last I have found the opportunity to write you a few lines. I can tell you, my dear one, that by the grace of God, Sister X and I are healthy and feel well. I thank you for your motherly care for me. We received all you have prepared for us I thank you for the most valuable thing, the Bible. Thanks to all. When you write to them, send my greetings and thanks for what they have done for me. Since the Lord revealed to me the deep mystery of His love, I consider myself to be the happiest in the world. The persecutions that I have to endure I consider as a special grace. I am glad that the Lord gave me from the first days of my faith the great happiness to suffer for Him. Pray for me that I may remain faithful to the Lord to the end. May the Lord keep you all and strengthen you for the holy battle. Sister X and I kiss you all. Perhaps we will have the opportunity to write you again. Don't worry about us. We are glad and joyful. Get this. Because our reward in heaven is great. Yours, Varia. How does one endure as Jesus' disciple when the most precious treasures get stripped away in the path of obedience? An incomparably greater treasure must take hold of us, must take hold of you. And that treasure is Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we need you to work these truths deep 
deeply into us. Please help us to treasure Jesus more, to see more of His glory as we read Your Word and meditate on Your goodness. And as we see Him, help us to endure and stand firm. Father, strengthen the women of this church. Give grace to them to endure the trials they are walking through now in the path of obedience. Shore them up in their most holy faith. So that their highest reward, the one they love the most, is in heaven. And strengthen the men. Strengthen us to lead well through difficult times, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us to consider Him and the sufferings He endured that we may not grow weary and lose heart. I pray that for all of us, Lord, in His name. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.